Welcome to Black Box by the Algorithmic Governance Research Network with me, Teresa Esbekuldova. Joining me today is Ursula Rao, Director of the Department of Anthropology of Politics and Governance at the Max Planck Institute of Social Anthropology in Halle to discuss digital identities, biometric technology, e-governance, new security regimes and bodies as evidence. Ursula has worked extensively on these subjects in India and today's conversation springs from several articles and the volume Bodies as Evidence, which she co-edited with Mark McGuire and Nils Durovsky. The full list of references will be posted in the episode description. So welcome to the show, Ursula. I'm happy to have you. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me. I feel delighted uh, to speak to you today. <laughs> Great. So you've conducted quite extensive ethnographic fieldwork in India, focusing uh, in the recent years on questions of biometric identification, biometric bodies and biometric evidence, as well as on governing through biometrics. But before we move ahead to discuss Aadhaar, which is the largest national biometric identification program in the world, and possibly the one thing our listeners are keen to know more about, I would like to turn to your article from 2018 on biometric bodies and electronic fingerprinting. Since the article, I think, nicely lays out the troubles that emerge when bodies meet machines and are kind of assumed by default to be machine readable, which they turn out not to be very often. <laughs> And in the article, you present quite uh, intriguing cases, one of the national health insurance, where the failure rates of fingerprinting among disadvantaged citizens were as high as 80%, uh, and the other of a newspaper company, which introduced mandatory biometric recording of attendance for all employees. And under the current crisis, corona pandemic, we see a proliferation of this type of workplace surveillance software. So we will turn to that later. But let us first turn to the first case of the use of biometrics in welfare technology. And could you kind of draw us into your field uh, and, and, uh, and kind of show what is at stake in, this, uh, in, in these technologies when they meet kind of reality? <laughs> um, thank you for this question. Uh, and, uh, and let me point out that um, we, you know, when I started researching biometric technology and the use in everyday governance, um, it was early days. I mean, this was the time when Adha was only just enrolling um, citizens into their new database, while the national health insurance and companies in the attendance um, registers were already using it for the um, bio, uh, for the verification of attendance or um, eligibility. In other words, they were testing or using technology at a, at a point when it was entirely new. Um, and what I'm tracing in my work is a slow process of technology settling into place. In other words, um, you know, technology is not just simply fitting or working or not working, but um, there are these slow processes of learning and adaptation that make bodies machine readable and that in fact reconfigure machines in ways that they are actually adapted to the body. And with the national health insurance, while initially um, rejection rates, rates were up to 80%, they are no longer were so high later on in the process because initially people had to learn that they had to wash their hands, that you know various hygiene measures were required in order to be machine readable, um, and this is of course a process of learning. Um, uh, the article traces some of these processes of micro adapting at both ends. Um, what I thought was interesting in the initial phase when. Um, it did not work so well, was um, the interesting um, development in which usually during the encounter, the body was blamed for not being readable, as opposed to people thinking that the machine was crappy. In other words, the machine seemed you know, superior and the body was blamed. Then, of course, in a more detailed analysis, one could understand that, you know, potentially the um, resolution of um, capture, the internet connection, all of these things do contributed to unreadability. But in the in initial instance, it was, oh, you have a dirty body, um, which was, uh, you know, an interesting uh, reflex. Um, I think that speaks about the way bodies are socially uh, um, perceived. 
um, which is what I am looking at in the case of the company. I took on the case of the newspaper company because initially, um, you know, lots of people discuss biometric failure with regards to the poor population. Because obviously what we know is that the fingertips um, are compromised by their harsh living conditions. They work in the fields, they might um, you know, have very simple kitchen utensils, they burn their fingers. In other words, um, the challenges that poor people face are aggravated. And thus I was interested in whether issues emerged also in middle-class settings. I wanted to know, you know, is this a problem of poverty or is this a problem of the machine body encounter? And working in the newspaper opened up entirely new um, perspectives on this, not just the one um, that I describe in the article about how, you know, caste classification and professional classification re-enter classificatory systems that try to individualize bodies, um, you know, and have nothing to do with caste and profession, actually. But, you know, by the way people use them, you know, become implicated in these regimes of classifications. But it also showed that um, issues with fingerprints um, were universal. They did have, you know, different um, a different character in a middle class setting, where, for example, you know, people would oil their hands in the morning, would use cosmetics that don't um, work well with machines. Um, sometimes, you know, people had attended festivals and had a decoration on their hand in in in, in henna um, colorings that you know, made the fingers unreadable. In other words, they had issues, but these issues were, were not, um, you know, were related to their lifestyle and they were specific to their lifestyle. And they too had to learn, you know, not to use oil, wash their hands, do this, do that, um, you know, in order, in order to produce the posture. Um, you know, something that has been discussed much in visual anthropology, you know, as people produce a posture in order to have a photograph or a passport. But this now extends to, you know, the way you manage the skin uh, and the surface of your body um, for machine reading. Absolutely, that's fascinating. And I would I also noticed one thing is the relation between the body itself and the and the machine, but the other one is the all kinds of social adaptation and social relations that it produces, right? So in this one case in the national uh, health insurance case uh, you have this kind of uh, this kind of uh, new ways of kind of making kin right uh, where you have uh, other people guaranteeing through their readable younger probably bodies for uh, for another person so that they can access the the rights that they have uh, kind of connected to this and in the other case of this uh, of this uh, newspaper company you nicely show how this uh, how kind of the the, the more uh, let's say uh, um, professionals, the journalists and so on, resisted the introduction of this kind of uh, biometric technology to read their attendance, right? Because they kind of imagined it as something for the lower classes or lower castes that, that are that are to be cleaners or something. But uh, then they devised this, uh, this, um, this machine that read it in the different uh, places in the building, right? So it was not, they could not be seen using the same kind of technology, same machine, right? But then the, all, these in, all this information went into the same database and actually got mixed, right? So, so they, as they tried to kind of try to separate these things, they eventually got mixed anyway in the database but you could not see them doing it right so I, I and then they were kind of happy about it and they stopped resisting as i understood it and i thought it was fascinating how this kind of created a whole new kind of or a, a bit of an old but uh, but the new version of social dynamics right <laughs> kind yeah of. for me this was an interesting finding because initially what i think lots of researchers expected and which was um in some way also the push um of the government was to radically individualize bodies in order to make citizens um, legibility to the state. Um, and we thought that biometric was the moment in which there was a radical individualization of the population. Um, and this is significant uh, before the background of the history of welfare in India, where um, when, um, you know, at the moment that India became independent, the state did not have granular data about citizens. 
So how do you deliver welfare to citizens which are not actually enumerated in some form of you know database that makes them targetable? Um, through government uh, projects. And, and so what happened is that lots of um, projects of governance were collective projects. They were targeted at the villages, at women, at farmers, um, categories that, um, you know, the, so they were not targeted at individuals, but at, at categories of people. And people could then kind of bring certain certificates um, in order to identify as a member in this group. Um, so, you know, lots of governance in India happened through this imagination of certain groups. And it seemed that the introduction of biometrics at this point was a paradigmatic shift in the way you think governance. Um, because you could now identify individuals, you could collect data on individuals, and then through algorithmic um calculation in the background of you know kind of big data you could identify all those who earn below so and so much all those who are widows all those and could actually target those people um you know and maybe even directly um address them through you know calling them um um sending them a letter um you know or you know automatically uh, crediting a benefit to their accounts which are linked to Adha. so this is a policy fantasy but you know for various reasons this did not work it did not work because the state is not configured in this way to think about the population but also because you know, biometric um, registration fails. So what I'm describing in this particular article, article is how welfare benefits continue to be allocated to families mostly. So the health insurance targets families. Also ration allocation in terms of food security for the uh, as part of the popular uh, of the um, of the public distribution system, it also is allocated to families, not to individuals. Um, although you know this has changed with the National um, Food Security Act. Now, now what happens is that when you allocate a benefit to family, they could relax biometric rules in so far as they could allow any member who is registered on the card. Um, of this kind of family benefit to draw the benefit on behalf of the family. And this is where I'm speaking about the expanded biometric body. So the expanded biometric body is then, you know, everybody that is in the pool of, of legitimate bodies that can be used for identification. So rather than having 10 fingerprints, you have, if there are five people in this pool, you have five times 10 fingerprints and the chances that, you know, at least one of these 50 fingerprints, you know, will be legible is just higher. So that in this case, you have this ex expanded biometric body because as, as it is, you are targeting the family and not the individual. So in other words, through the way governance operates in India, um, you know, this um, individualizing effect of Adha is reversed because families kind of are an important unit of management of the population in India. The other case is interesting because it is it, it brings in categories from, you know, not from top down, but from bottom up. So while the health insurance says, okay, this is targeted families, so they actually expand the vista of the state beyond the individual. In the case of the um, of the um, newspaper company, what happened is um, that they actually wanted to account for the individual worker and seeing whether this person, the employee, is at his or her desk on time doing the work they expected to do. But what happens is that workers um, identify through um, their roles. So they are either kind of professional white collar workers or they are, um, you, you know, workers um, in the in the service um, uh, section of the institution. And they were not willing to be subjected to the same regime of surveillance. And this was a problem of an imaginary of, you know, who you are as a person with regards to your status in a company. 
So they resisted this idea that, um, you know, I as a professional, I as a teacher, I'm as a, as an executive, as a manager of a company, you know, would be um, uh, made to submit to the same surveillance regime as someone who is a worker or a cleaner. Um, but, you know, rather than, um, so the company uh, paid attention to this and they said, okay, we'll kind of distinguish this, but we distinguish the machines and not the regime. So you have different machines in which you can clock in, but you know then the clock data, as you said, you know lands in the same database and produces the same results. So so it's just a surface at which you're producing this distinction in order to to um, you know make basically employees comply, um, you know, with your new employment um, uh, 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 surveillance regime. Mm. Yeah, and we see more, more and more of these uh, workplace surveillance technologies. Uh, do you have any uh, overview of, of the recent developments within uh, within this? I know there's lots of facial recognition being used as well. And uh, so this kind of regime of surveillance of workers has been expanding maybe recently as well. I think there are two um, two forms in which um, you know there are interesting discussions about it. One is that is expanded into the question um, that we are now also discussing in the COVID context, which is mobile work or home office. In other words, when you measure attendance at the desk in the office, the question is: Are you actually measuring efficiency and um, effectiveness um, of the work? Um, and uh, in the context of, of COVID, you know, lots of company experience that, you know, people would be working as effectively or maybe even more effectively if they are at home. So I think COVID has reopened um, the question of whether surveillance of attendance on a workplace is really, you know, a useful measure um, in order to surveil, um, you know, work processes. Mm. Yeah, but you have simultaneously lots of new software that traces you, you know, like on 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 camera, right? Keystroke monitoring, whatever you do on the computer, right? So you have you kind of get the surveillance apparatus into your own home. So so uh, <laughs> yeah, there is a very interesting study by Anish on um, you know on um, something for which he coined the term allocracy, and these are algorithms. Um, that try to uh, monitor, you know, what you're doing and how you're doing it. And um, this is, of course, used extensively in decentralized companies, especially when you work with large workforces that are um, in uh, in overseas, in transnational companies that work with outsourcing. Um, and this is through portals. When are you logging yourself into the portals, what you are doing there, what you can do there, so how the algorithm actually channels um, what and how you're working and what speed you're working, you know, which permissions do you have, what you can see, what information is provided to you, how you expected to react to this. So if you work digitally, then of course everything you do or don't do can be monitored very closely. And um, you know, with algorithms, you can analyze this data in, in multiple ways which creates totally new forms of micro surveillance um, in, you know, the, the way we do our work every day. Hmm. So uh, maybe we should return a bit to this biometric governance and, uh, and, and biometric governance in India and the detification of the state and how, uh, how it has been working out. Uh, maybe you can first tell us more about uh, Aadhaar. I think that not everybody may be familiar with uh, with what it is and how it emerged, what kind of uh, imaginary maybe it is, uh, yeah, it kind of uh, reflects uh, and uh, and how it kind of meets reality. <laughs> well, Adhan is interesting. It's a model case because it is the largest biometric database um, in the world. Um, and the ambition was to register every Indian resident. And I'm saying resident, I'm not saying citizen. Uh, every Indian uh, resident in a biometric database. Um, and um, the Indian state has pretty much accomplished this. In other words, there is a database which about 1.3 billion um, entries um, of people who are residing in India. Now, very early on, it was decided in order to 
allow such a registration to move quickly that there would be no information, um, in-depth information about social identity on the database. Um, and this basically allowed rolling this out without much of identity check. If you were willing to enroll everyone um, who is a resident of India, you can just go out and register anyone. Now, this is what they did initially. They did um, they did allow um, anyone to register without showing any documents. And that created all kinds of discussions around um, potentially whether people were getting registered in Aadhaar and would later claim on the basis of being registered with this biometric database, some special status to being in some way Indian, Indian resident, turn Indian citizen, turn, you know, this is the usual function creep that you have. When you accumulate documents, you will make these documents work for you. Um, and um, there was a worry about especially migrants from neighboring countries who might, you know, register in this database and then later claim status as citizens, um, which um, they maybe never had. Um, although this is technically not possible, you know, as a process of social negotiation that was seen to be a danger. And this is why um, then they, uh, you know, made the threshold, uh, they increased the threshold for registration. That means you had to bring um, at least um, two documents, actually was supposed to be three documents or three types of information, even if they're collated in one document. This is a proof of identity, a proof um, of address, and a proof of date of birth. Um, now, the proof of date of birth was not mandatory, um, so that the database continues to have all kinds of fictional dates of birth, because lots of people don't have proof of date of birth, especially if you're if you kind of grown up in the village and you don't have a birth certificate, you know, then there is no registered form of proof of when you were um, born, so also you don't know your age exactly. Um, now, proof of identity, um, you know, could be anything from a school registration certificate to um, a caste certificate, a passport. Um, there's a long list of documents that you could show. Um, and proof of address um, is uh, obviously a proof that you're residing as a particular address. Now, this created now, um, you know, new forms of complications because um, Aadhaar claims that all they do is link a body to a database in order to de what they call the deduplicate the population. In other words, you wanted to make sure that every person has one unique identity number. So there's a biometric um, database with your biometric data. There's a number attached to it of 12 digits. This digit, uh, this number is unique. Um, and you can use this number anywhere to identify as being this person uh, who has these kinds of biometrics and nothing is known about you except very basic data, which is um, your address, um, whether you're male, female or another gender and, um, and your name uh, and date of birth. Now the problem with uh, the problem this there are several problems with it. On one hand, you know, you in order to show your identity and show your address, you're actually already a social being um, because, for example, you are a migrant worker in the city, but you don't have an address in the city. Then you have to show your um, address in the village, and then your village address gets entered into databases. And this is, for example, now complicated because um, what they're trying to do now is um, you know register um, COVID cases and where they're occurring. Now, when you register COVID cases on the basis of a positive test and the person is in the city working there as a migrant labor, but this becomes reported through the Aadhaar number, on the Aadhaar number, you have the village database, then this person gets registered as being in the village. So you can actually not know how many people in any one, um, in any one location have COVID or do not have COVID. So the figures that you're seeing, for example, of COVID infections on the database, you know, uh, you know, only um, um, fictionally related to you know what's happening on the ground um, in any location, um, and you know, which complicates governance in many ways. So, um, so by in some way collecting this data, but then making it irrelevant, you produce persons which 
emerge as these persons with certain identities in certain, you know, and, and this information gets entered into certain databases, which then, you know, kind of produce their own readings, which are contrary potentially to, um, you know, to what you are wanting to measure or, you know, what you need to know. <laughs> yes, and you also uh, note quite uh, nicely how um, how kind of uh, this official personhood comes uh, into being, right? Uh, you, you now talked about the kind of documentary proof, the necessary papers, and but it's also this kind of personal recognition, right? Somebody, uh, somebody has to kind of guarantee for you uh, in some cases, right? So, so there's this, uh, there, there's this. Uh, whole process in how you actually get recognized as a unique person, right? Um, uh, so uh, can, can you give us some examples, uh, some ethnographic examples of how, how people kind of try to be recognized in this uh, in this database and how this kind of uh, altered identity <laughs> comes into being in, in real life? Because uh, I, I thought it was fascinating what kind of relations emerge in the process as well. Uh, um, yes, um, I, I'm, I'm happy to give some examples because this goes back to the question we have dealt with initially, which is the question of, you know, do you exist as an individual? And of course you don't. I mean, it's a fiction. Um, you know, as an individual, you're always related to someone. So you, for example, someone's child. Um, so that is already a primordial relationship that will always exist. Um, now, what happens in Adha, that as you're trying to register individuals and you want to know these individuals, you want to know who they are, you have to trace back through these um, significant relations. Um, and uh, take, for example, um, a person in a resettlement colony in, in Delhi. Um, this is a woman. She is brought from the village to marry one of the boys who's resident there. And now this boy comes to the Adha center and says, um, here, this is my wife. I want to register her. Um, and then um, and then they say, um, can you prove that she's your wife? And he says, well, we have married in a Hindu ceremony. So there's um, the ceremony certificates. And uh, but these are, of course, not state certificates. So they're not recognized. Um, then the question is, how can she you know, who is she? You know, if she cannot be proven to be a resident of this this place in Delhi, she cannot be proven to be the wife of this person. Who then is she? So now you go back to the village. Um, now in the village, you need to identify the parents and you should go to the parents and say, um, can we, um, uh, you know, can you um, register um, this person? Uh, with Adha, but in order to register this person with Adha, the the woman then has to travel back to the village. And as she goes to the village counter, then the person asks, so can you prove that she is your daughter? And, um, you know, then they either have a document like, for example, the Russian card in which this daughter has entered, uh, but then she gets entered as the daughter of um, this father, as opposed to the wife of this man which later on, you know, when this man wants to register for uh, uh, the ration card, which gives the food security in the new home, you know, getting food for this wife in the new home, she's registered as the daughter of the father in this village, as opposed to the wife of this man in Delhi, um, you know, which then creates complications when later on. So in other words, the, you know, I mean, there is a creeping, you know, what I said before, you know, as, you know, as people get actually included in Ada, they get in some way, you know, they become fictional persons, persons without relations. But because through the tracing of certain relations, they've entered into the database, the traces of these relations on the database have have consequences later on for when the individual again gets mobilized and related to data to state projects that make certain requirements or that define certain requirements in order to um, be eligible for a project or not and you know these traces then pop up and create consequences 
I think it's fascinating to listen to uh, or even to read what you write about all these cases and, and this kind of tension between this uh, technocratic governance, right, that tries to individualize and always this uh, social reality that kind of strikes back, right, and and how these merge. And, uh, and you had also a funny case of, uh, now I don't remember how many wives he had, but he had uh, 30 plus uh, wives, right? And <laughs> maybe you can say that and how it kind of... This, this case is interesting because it was, you know, I, there's a filter. Um, what they're trying to do is prevent corruption. So the Aadhaar registration has a filter because one way in which you can register people who are no have no documents and have never forgotten any document, you can allow a husband... Um, to identify a person through personal identification. For example, this is my wife or this is my daughter. And they will recognize this if the person who is registered and the other person actually has a biometric identity already. Um, now, and, and this person is called the identifier. So the identifier says, you know, this is my child. Now, what happened in this village is, and this popped up on the screen in Delhi in the uh, in the Adha office, in the central office, is that this person went around identifying 30 wives and, uh, you know, so many children. And, you know, the person said, you know, this is this is fraud, you know, and all these identities were cancelled because, you know, no man has 30 wives. Um, but they were curious. They thought, you know, this is a maybe a huge corruption scam. Let's travel to this village. And they traveled to this village and then found a man who had married 30 wives and had over 100 children. And it was actually a family living together, more like a clan. I mean, it actually existed. And, you know, which then they, you know, let the data pass but you know normally you know you would you would assume when you build filters in order to prevent corruptions in your database you make assumptions about what normally normally families look like or what normally people would be like or how normally people would be moving but these are average assumptions about the population that might or might not apply to individual cases so that you get caught in a filter or your data gets caught in a filter um, you know, when you have uh, less than normal life, um, you know, whatever, whatever bureaucrats, you know, consider to be normal or technocrats, in fact, um, you know, create a program to be the norm um, at any at any point. What do you do if you don't have a family? <laughs> uh, this is actually an interesting question, because I wanted to tell you, you know, my stories now all sound as if this is all, um, you know, preventing um, you know, people from accessing um, governance services or getting um, or getting benefits, but you know, this can of course also be used in uh, in subversive ways. And um, here's a story that I thought was interesting about a woman who um, was very old. She was alone. She was um, she was wanting to enroll in the national health insurance, but her fingerprint was just not working. And at the same time, she was feeling um, really bad for the daughter-in-law next door because what happened is that in the national health insurance, you can register only five people on one card. And what the family had done, they had registered, they have three sons. Um, and so they had registered the mother, um, three of the sons, and then there was um, space for um one daughter-in-law. So one daughter-in-law got registered, but the other two daughter-in-laws, they did not get registered. So this, you know, this woman, this old woman next door, she was, you know, deeply troubled by this because she remembered her own time as a young daughter-in-law and how she was always left out, left out at everything. So she, you know, everyone else got, you know, special allocations, um, you know, could do trips, could, and she was always disadvantaged and she suffered hugely um, at that time. And she was, you know, revisiting some of that suffering as she was seeing how the family next door were always discriminating against the youngest daughter-in-law and basically making her do all the work, but never including her in any benefit. So she said, um, you know, can I register this um, this daughter-in-law in my health card? Um, and, um, you know, the social worker said, well, yeah, no one is going to check as long as you say, you know, she is my relative, you can <laughs> register her. Um, so what she did is she took this daughter-in-law and registered her on on the health card, in which in that situation had two advantages because the old woman had someone to identify, you know, young fingerprints, 
um, who could you know help over the hospital and at the same time this daughter-in-law could draw from the funds that were allocated actually to this old woman and so this was a fictional family a family that was actually made or kind of a marriage made by the national health insurance so in other words what i'm saying is you know the the subversion is both from above above and below um you know it's not just kind of above uh, you know uh, problems of function creep and also um, uh, misfunctioning, but you know, you also find loopholes um, that can be exploited by people to um, use biometric uh, governance to their own advantage. But you also write that there are there are kind of mediators, or there's like relations of patronage emerging within these systems, right? Uh, uh, could you maybe say something about uh, about those uh, kind of brokers that uh, are there for? Yeah, I mean, this, of course, is a fiction that um, the biometric body will link the body directly to the governance and that there's no more intermediaries. Um, So they're talking about two types of um, intermediaries that are supposed to cut through. One is, um, you know, what is often perceived as a long-winded corrupt bureaucracy um, that is inefficient. So somehow the belief is that these various um, bureaucratic, you know, offices and hierarchies, um, you know, would be cut off cut out at the same time there is the notion that um that intermediaries um will um no longer um be uh be playing a role for um um that intermediaries will be uh, no longer playing a role for uh, mediating between the citizen and the state because all of this is instantaneous and um digitally possible but of course, um, you know, what happens is that intermediaries um, or there are new, more intermediaries that play a role. Firstly, because there's a huge amount of technical knowledge required in order for um, people to um, be able to navigate this digital jungle. Um, you know, they, you know, they're maybe not literate, they maybe don't know English, they maybe don't understand how to operate databases, they maybe don't have a computer, their smartphone maybe always runs out of battery, maybe they don't have electricity at home to charge the battery. In other words, they need lots of people to assist them, um, you know, with kind of getting to the web of uh, the database, you're working through the various portals, getting registered, printing out the form you need, um, scanning this form, you know, all of this is is, um, you know, full of steps that are easy to accomplish when you're in a well-equipped office, but not when you're sitting in a village in India. So, you know, they are the technical brokers. But then there are, of course, also, um, you know, those brokers who bring about, um, you know, serendipitous relations. Um, because one of the big disappointments for people was that after all the fuss with Adha, Adha actually didn't grant any rights. It didn't show your citizenship. It didn't show that you had um, um, a status of poverty and were eligible to certain schemes. In other words, it, it does not help you in accessing on any of the services that you might be interested in. It doesn't get you a bank account. Um, it's only a precondition in order to you know begin the process of applying for a bank account. And it was a big disappointment to lots of people that now they have a identity card. You know why can't I get? A bank account. Why can't I get food security? Why can't I get all these things? Um, so the navigating of you know these various um, um, services and access to the services remains to be um, um, you know in the hand of a complicated network of brokers who can uh, you help you you know be become eligible, become visible to the state for relevant services and not just for an abstract identity. Hmm. What I'm thinking now also there have been, um, uh, of course, uh, w one thing is that you have this Aadhaar, but then it is linked to other databases probably, right? Uh, and uh, and how, how has this worked? I mean, I've heard there have been like data leaks and data breaches and uh, and then again, various attempts at linking other to kind of private actors, banks, right? Similar. Uh, and now there have been uh, some controversies around Aadhaar in the context of the protests against the Citizenship Amendment Act. Uh, and then again, uh, recently I read uh, there, there was some discussion around the deadlines and kind of threat of fines for resistance to link the pen card to Aadhaar. Maybe you could explain what this is all about. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> 
Uh, at least five issues with biometric uh, governance. Um, one is um, data safety. Then there's data security. Then there's question of data sharing. Then there's function creep. And then there's questions of surveillance and inclusion, right? So let me just go through these. Um, the data safety is about, um, you know, whether um, your data is being used according to the function for which you have submitted it. So in other words, is the office using your data in a way that is appropriate um, to the task that they're trying to accomplish or are they using it in some other ways for example you know are they using it in order to you know get your food security or might there be harvesting data about where you're living what your religion is in order to then target you potentially for negative um uh, you know forms of interventions and data security, of course, um, you know, that's data security, sorry. Data safety concerns the question of whether your data is safe with anyone, um, you know, whether the computer can be hacked, whether it's leaked, whether it's published in some way that might be, um, you know, leading to identity theft or, you know, other forms, um, you know, of, um, of criminal, you know, criminal acts related to, um, to data. So is your data safe? Is it being used in the way um, that it should be? Um, but then there's also data sharing between offices. So in other words, um, you know, if you draw for food security, um, you know, you should not have an income of more than so and so much. But if you are paying tax and the tax office can now communicate easily with the food security office, then all kinds of, um, you know, potential uh, information is flowing between the offices and that might be disadvantageous uh, to citizen, citizens. So the question is, you know, what data sharing should be allowed and which not, because if every Every person has a number, a unique number that uh, is um, that is um, registered in in basically every service. Then theoretically, um, you can link all data of a person together and create a fairly complex picture of a person. And this, uh, of course, is a huge disadvantage. Um, and um, and so while interoperability of databases is an advantage in some services, it is, uh, it is a problem with regards to um, citizens' rights and also rights to privacy. Um, and, then, and, then, and then that is related to function creep, because function creep is when you design a technology and implement it in order to do a certain, uh, you know, a certain, offer a certain service or, you know, produce a certain, um, you know, targeted intervention, but then actually the same data can be used for something else. And later on, you decide to build on top of it a new form of um, measure, whether this is, um, you know, welfare or a surveillance measure, um, something that was not kind of initially communicated when the project started, but, you know, something that occurred later, then can you actually withdraw the data from the database um, and, and, and how will you do it um, if you don't want your data to be used for whatever the new purpose is? Mm -hmm. um, so function creep is something that's very hard to defend against um, as a citizen. And then, of course, there's the question of um, surveillance and inclusion. Um, in, um, in surveillance and inclusion, you know, my intervention has been mainly in regards to the way the breakdown of surveillance. Now, surveillance is, of course, always very often mostly seen as a negative um, activity. And um, it is when it is used to the disadvantage of citizens. But of course, the visibility of citizens to the state are also, is also a precondition for welfare. Now, um, the problem with in with patchy surveillance is that in some way it allows people to subvert a kind of total governance, um, which is a problem, especially if, you know, we're looking at a, a, a totalitarian regimes or regimes that do not have sufficient laws for protecting citizens against, um, uh, you know, infringements on data safety and data security. But it is a problem when uh, when you actually want to be included, because if the condition for inclusion is that the state knows certain things about you, and these are not known because uh, the registration of this data, so the data surveillance was incomplete, then you can't be seen properly and you are on the database a different person than you believe yourself to be. 
And with this mismatch, the state will always believe the data on the screen. Um, mm. And this is where some of the frustration rests. The papers say, you know, why, why does no one believe my story? Why has storytelling become an illegitimate tool of, um, you know, being recognized? Why can I not stand in front of you and say, look at me, I'm poor. But if the data says you are not poor, then you are not poor. Um, so in other words, you know, in, in, a, in, a, in a time when data are taken to be the most serious, most objective and truthful picture of a person, then you have to be sure that whatever data is captured, that data represents in some way who you are or who you want um, to be seen as. Um, because otherwise, um, you know, you are excluded from all kinds of things you believe you are entitled to. Yeah, it reminded me of this uh, Bollywood movie, <laughs> this Kagas, <laughs> where it, which tells the story of this uh, fellow Lal Bihari who was uh, declared uh, dead, right? Uh, but he was alive, but he didn't have a paper to prove that <laughs> that he was alive. And it turned out that there were many more uh, like him. Uh, and, and it precisely shows this, uh, you know, <laughs> whatever is in the database, whatever is either on the paper or digitally, it kind of doesn't matter, right? But, uh, but, uh, but this is what is believed by the state, uh, irrespective of the reality. And uh, this is, uh, yes, it, it, it is a bit of a problem of kind of total surveillance and over surveillance and, and not being seen in, in a regime of surveillance is uh, right. It's all kinds of <laughs> issues that emerge there. But I think this also no, okay. isn't, isn't, isn't yeah. a discussion that we also had in Delhi with feminists who um, were against the installment of CCTV technology, which was so the claim was that we have cameras in order to surveil the streets so that, um, you know, women, should there be, you know, sexual violence against them, you know, could make a case in court and could actually use, um, you know, this surveillance from the cameras in order to tell their story. And it frustrated feminists because it said it further delegitimizes the, the voice of women who basically say, you know, but I was, um, you know, sexually harassed or, you know, or there was, a, a, you know, even violence against me. Um, you know, if it didn't happen in front of a camera, then it didn't exist. So they say that, you know, this is a form of kind of uh, a creeping development in which only technology can tell a, sto a story, a story that is considered to be, truthful and legitimate yes yes and this is the whole imaginary of technology right it is neutral it is objective and it is and, and as you nicely show in all your cases it is anything but <laughs> but, <laughs> but uh, yes but it is opens also a more kind of general question of the idea of uh, bodies as evidence right the the, the physical body as uh, as evidence and uh, how kind of bodies both become sources for production of evidence and target of evidence-based uh, interventions. And you made this nice uh, co-edited volume uh, uh, precisely on this uh, question. And, uh, and, and I think it, we see a far kind of uh, larger preoccupation these days with, with bodies, with biometrics, forensics, uh, connected precisely to the kind of security state, policing, control of surveillance, and uh, and also this kind of idea that the body doesn't lie, right? That the, the, the body is, uh, it cannot fool you, right? So we see that a lot of technologies proliferate that, uh, that look at, I, I don't know, uh, strange uh, theories kind of resuscitating this kind of uh, phrenology, <laughs> all kinds of uh, micro micro movements in your face are supposed to tell if you're lying or if you're truthful and, and so on, if you're trustworthy, right? So, so lots of bogus technologies are kind of proliferating, but that with the kind of promise that they, they detect uh, whatever is happening in the body and then tell you like, are you a liar? Are you a threat? Are you a risk? Uh, and so forth. So uh, what are your thoughts on, on these kind of developments? <laughs> yeah, so the book um, Bodies as Evidence that I have co-edited together with um, uh, Mark McQuarrie and uh, um, Neil Suraspi uh, um, is, um, you know, emerged from this paradox that on some, uh, you know, at some level, people are declaring that we live in a post-truth world. Um, but then at the same time, we observe this new fetishization of the body as, you know, the true, um, um, uh, as, um, as a source for harvesting truth. Um, 
And, um, and of course, the stories, um, you know, and biometric governance is only, uh, you know, one ways in which, you know, bodies get mobilized in order to collect data. There are, of course, um, others um, like forensic analysis, um, uh, um, big data analysis. Then there's, um, you know, gene-based uh, medicine. So in other words, there are various ways in which data is extracted from the body in order to read the body you know, and, and make claims about truth. Um, but of course, the, the stories is never a story of the body or a story of truth, but it's a story that emerges through the interpretation of the data that is generated through these particular ways in which um, the body is represented. Um, and um, and then in, in relation to uh, the data, um, you know, that is contextualized with further information, you then, um, you know, make inferences. And, and the book has, um, you know, various um, discusses um, through uh, various fields how this works. For example, in, in, in court analysis, forensic analysis. So Antonio Robin and Francisco Ferrandez, they write about, you know, how, um, you know, from excavating um bodies um, that, you know, that are um, in mass graves, um, you know, the information uh, is mobilized in transitional justice uh, court cases. Um, and then um, Ahmad, of course, did this wonderful um, uh, um, piece on, um, on uh, big data analysis, um, which is not in the book, but which emerged, you know, beyond this book, where she shows how unidentified bodies um, you know, that uh, are found on the shores of Europe and that probably have died, um, you know, people from migrants from across the world who died as they were trying to cross the um, Mediterranean Sea in order to reach the shores in Europe. Um, how, um, you know, do you know their identity? Um, so what they do sometimes is they analyze um, data from social media websites in order to figure out who this person could be. You know, a new, the, new form of forensic um, that um, is now possible through big data analysis. And then there's, of course, the idea of predictive policing. I have a colleague here at the, um, in the Max Planck Society who has just been employed, who tries to predict not just where burglars uh, can be found, but how they operate. So what they do is they analyze um, data from surveillance cameras and then um, discern from those typical patterns um, in which burglars would be moving um, in order to predict, um, you know, how potentially a, burglar, a burglary is um, taking place in order to devise better technology so that you can protect your house from, you know, paper, um, you know, breaking into your house and then stealing your possessions. So, so you see, predictive policing is taking on um, kind of new forms, you know, as um, you know, as we identify what bodies are doing. Um, mm. And gene-based medicine, we all know this. I mean, on one way, they are saying there is no, you know, there are no clusters of um, of genes that define groups, right? Which is, has been very important, um, also in kind of anti-racist struggles. Um, but at the same time, medicine, you know, tries to drill down um, to the granular level of um, gene analysis in order to show how particular people with kind of particular gene clusters might be susceptible to certain diseases or could be cured by particular kind of medicines. So this is kind of curating medicines and, and, and using uh, gene analysis for a diagnostic analysis, which is uh, in some way pushing uh, you know, new frontiers in medicine, but at the same time, you know, creates uh, new problems with regards to who gets seen in you know, who gets seen in an illness and who does not. Because if you don't belong to that cluster, you know, that any illness that, you know, might um, plug you might uh, might actually never get detected because you don't show that particular, you know, uh, phenomena in your genes. Um. Yes, but I think lots of these technologies, they are directed at kind of, or driven by the idea of the ability of predicting the future, right? And, and catching things right, right before or before they happen, before they occur, so that you have always this, uh, always this kind of notion that uh, 
you know, you can you can control basically the futures, you can control behavior, you can predict say, even social outcomes. This is where most of these technologies fail, right? They can be good at predicting some things, but <laughs> definitely not social outcomes. They rather create these kind of self-fulfilling prophecies, right? Like in predictive policing software, we see that the more people kind of are labeled as high risk, well, then they will kind of be again visited by the police and their risk score will increase and so on. So you create these kind of feedback loops, right, that uh, that are actually very detrimental to, to those that get flagged by these technologies, right? And then it is perceived as objective and neutral, which it is again or not. So, so in all these, you have this idea of uh, kind of predicting what the bodies will do, what what futures we will have and kind of controlling society. And, and it's kind of uncanny because you kind of also move uh, the legal regulation towards the future rather than, <laughs> right? So you, you no longer know it is a bit like this kind of pandemic governance, right? You get, uh, get real-time data and you have uh, real-time kind of decisions. Uh, uh, you change the regulation in adjustment with whatever the latest statistical model is predicting. Uh, and, and, and so you kind of have this constant continuous flow of regulation and, uh, and, and so forth. And I, I think this is interesting because in, in the old days, kind of, you would kind of see, okay, the criminal law says that this is not allowed, right? Everybody has a certain idea of, of what kind of acts are maybe criminal. But now you can kind of change, push these boundaries in, in almost in real time and change the rules, right? You keep changing what is allowed, what is not allowed and, and create this kind of uh, new type of paradox, right? You try to predict the future uh, all the time, but you keep constantly changing the rules of the game <laughs> at the same time. So, so it becomes kind of fundamentally unpredictable for the individual, but maybe for the system. <laughs> so, so, so this kind of creates another level of... Uh, of kind of uh, peculiarity, right? <laughs> the same way which this kind of idea of the, you know, the body has the truth in a post-truth society, uh, the same way you kind of try to control the futures, but basically by doing it, make the world unpredictable in itself. And uh, it's a very <laughs> interesting dynamic. Yeah, I, think, I think we, you know, so so the question is, you know, what, what are, um, you know, scholars doing in this? You know, what is the role of scholars when we, um, you know, critique um, these tools? Um, because in some way, you know, especially um, in the recent, in the recent, in the last year with COVID, we have become aware of the, you know, power of these technologies to actually help us, um, you know, in very quick decision making. Um, but at the same time, we've also come across many of the, um, you know, the problems. Um, and um, and so um, I think what we must be cautious about is not to romanticize the past in the sense of you know every relationship between the individual and society and between um, you know knowledge and power is always mediated and it always was um, you know. Um, However, what you're saying correctly, I think, and which is super important and which um, your project, of course, is focusing on is, you know, how the complexity of, um, you know, these abstractions and mediations has increased. Um, and it requires to understand, um, you know, these processes of mediations and their social effects. It requires much more sophisticated instru instruments of methodological reflection. And this is where I see an important um, role of scholars, um, because sometimes what happens is that um, we are asked to, um, you know, use our own knowledge in order, um, you know, to, to make suggestions about social engineering, um, you know, which might or might not be a useful uh, activity for an academic. Um, and... Um, but what is an absolutely necessary um, um, role of an academic is to provide a critical inspection of the mechanisms by which represent, representations are produced and to show the social effects of these representations on you know the way humans live together and i think um they are, um you know this is a very important activity because it allows us to have critical knowledge about the kind of 
the kind of social systems we produce, um, you know, all, as many people work together to create, um, you know, all kinds of technology and knowledge um, and acts of communication, um, companies will always sell their products and they will always state, overstate their efficiency, you know. Um, governance um, will always, um, you know, be related to government and, uh, you know, promising things to voters. And users will always, you know, kind of point to the faults and why it didn't work for them. You know, amidst this cacophony <laughs> of voices, uh, you know, it's our job to basically, you know, do radical analysis of um, the kind of representations that are produced and how these representations create particular specific social, um, economic, political effects. Hmm. Actually, I think these were great final words. <laughs> I think we have a mission here, so I think we can conclude here and say that this was Ursula Rao on biometrics and governance. And many thanks for joining me today. It was great fun. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Bye, Teresa. Bye.